Our passage for this morning is out of 1 Peter chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there with me now. Have you ever noticed how gracious God is in His Word that He has given us by giving us the motivation that we need to obey Him? Have you ever sat back and wondered why God didn't just write the Bible as a bunch of do's and don'ts with a big because I said so clause? How many of you parents, when your children ask you, and those of you with little kids, you know, they ask you why a lot. Why, why, why? And you get tired and you just say, because I said so. That's appropriate at times, but it's not good to do all the time. Those of you with older children, as you have taught some teenagers how to drive, if you're teaching your teenager how to drive and they're driving down the road and you say, hey, you're getting going a little too fast, you need to slow down, and they say, well, why do I need to slow down? And you begin to explain to them, if all you do is you say, because that white sign on the side of the road says 55, so you can't go any faster. If that is the only motivation that you give your teenager to obey that 55 speed limit, only the most phaeserical child is going to abide by that. It's only after you explain the safety concerns of driving too fast in populated areas, that there are reasons for speed limits, protective reasons, safety reasons, and on top of that, there are police who will punish you if you do otherwise. Only then will young drivers, or even older ones at that, be motivated to follow what that little white sign says. Knowing why, having a reason makes all the difference. As human beings as you learn from a very young age, we all have this innate desire to know why. Why motivates us to do what we know we should do. And God, out of anyone, has the right to give a bunch of laws, a bunch of do's and don'ts, and say, just do it because I said so. Because He is God. Yet He is so gracious to tell us why and give us the motivation to obey Him. God has done this since the beginning of time. From the very beginning, from the time God put Adam in the garden to work it, He said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the very beginning, God didn't even wait for someone to ask why. He just told Adam right away. He says, For stating purpose, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The majority of God's Word that He has given us is not the do's and don'ts of the life of those who follow God, but the majority of it is putting those commands in context, in the context of God's character, giving us reasons and examples to follow in order to help and motivate us to obey and this is exactly what we find in 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's go ahead and read that now. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's stop there. This sermon, I'm going to be covering the first six verses of that section. The next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going over verses 1 to 11, but today I'm just covering the first section there, sections, the verses 1 to 6. And that first section, as I mentioned, is the motivation why we should obey God. It gives us the why. Why we should obey. So you have a couple points in your outline in your bulletin this morning, and those are going to be for this week and next week. We're just going to cover that first point this morning. Know and understand why. We have to know and understand why we should obey. Not only what Peter commands in the following verses, but these reasons why will inform us to obey any of the commands throughout the rest of Scripture. So back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There are many verses in the book of First Peter which are very difficult to interpret. And this is, this is one of those verses. The question is, what does it mean that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? And we'll answer this question, talk about it towards the end of the message after we've looked at what it means that Christ suffered in the flesh. So the main subject and verb in section verses 1-6 to is that charge to arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. And what Peter commends his readers to arm themselves with is the purpose. The why of obedience. Why should we obey? And in these first six verses, I see three reasons Peter gives for why we are to obey before he even gets into how we are to obey. But before we get into those three reasons why, I want to take a moment just to talk about this command to arm yourself. Peter says in chapter 4, verse 1, arm yourselves. And the Greek word there for arm is hoplizo. And it comes from the root word hoplon, which is a weapon. Hoplizo has the idea of preparing for battle, taking up a weapon to arm yourself for battle. Paul used a form of this word twice in Ephesians 6 when he says, put on or take up the full armor of God. Fully arm yourself. 
But Peter here commends us to prepare for battle or arm ourselves by taking up a specific implement, and that is the purpose. And specifically, the purpose or the thinking of Christ in His suffering. We're to pay attention and arm ourselves with this first reason why. Why do we obey? Because Christ suffered. So why number one is because Christ suffered. So why should we obey the commands that Peter is about to lay before us? Because Christ submitted and obeyed the Father even to the point of death, death on a cross. 1 Peter 4.1 says, Therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. As Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Some translations say purpose. We are specifically called to look to the thinking or the purpose Christ had in His suffering. So let's take a brief moment to look at that. And this will more fully inform our hearts as we arm ourselves to obey. Because we have not gone through the whole book of 1 Peter exegetically like we would have ideally if we had all the time in the world, we need to go back and see what Peter has already said concerning the suffering of Christ because no doubt he wants us to have that fresh in our minds and he assumes we would have because his letter was meant to be read from front to back. So he wants us to have those things in the forefront of our minds, so let's look at them now. 1 Peter chapter 2 you might have to go back a couple pages. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And we are called to arm ourselves with the thinking Christ had in His sufferings. And we see something specific here that Christ had on His mind, in His thinking, in His purpose. First Peter 2, 21-24. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This passage explicitly states one thing that Christ had in His mindset that we must arm ourselves with. And that's in verse 23 where it says, Christ continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He continually, actively entrusted Himself to the Father. He continued to submit Himself and His own will to God's will even unto death. Christ was prepared to and did submit His will to the Father no matter the cost. And I don't want to just gloss over this because many of us, we've been in church our whole life and we just tend to trivialize things and think, oh, yep, Christ submitted everything and we gloss over it and we move on. We must stop and recognize the gravity of what Christ did. When He was reviled and blasphemed and hated and mocked and beaten, He did not revile in return to those who did it to Him. When He suffered, as it says in verse 23, He did not threaten those who abused Him, but continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. 
in order to get the gravity of this, I just want to return quickly to something I said and preached on out of Hebrews a couple months ago. In that sermon, we looked at the fact that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was the agent by which the Father created the world. And not only did Christ create all things, but Colossians 1.17 says He holds all things together. And Hebrews 1.3 says that He holds the universe in motion. Christ created all things from the smallest thing and He holds all things together to the largest planet or star in the universe. He holds the universe in motion and together. Every atom is under His control. Every planet propelled by Him. He actively holds all things together and in motion. And He has since the beginning of time. Christ's divine nature continued to hold the universe together and in motion while He was here on earth. And that is such a big deal to us because it means that while those men came to arrest Him, while Judas, as we heard last week and the week before, came to betray Jesus and so wickedly with a kiss, Jesus held Judas together and in motion to fulfill the Father's will. As Christ was being beaten, Christ actively submitted His will to the will of the Father by holding the lives of His abusers together. Every strike of the whip, every swing of the hammer, every breath that those men took Christ's divine nature held them together and in motion unto the completion of the Father's will. The error that many believe is that Christ was passive in His crucifixion when in the reality He was the one actively advancing the will of God and entrusting Himself, submitting Himself to the will of the Father when He had all power within Himself to stop what was happening to Him. If that were you or I, we would have no power to stop it. No doubt we would have if we had the power. But Christ had that power within Himself, and yet He continued to submit His will to the will of the Father and subject Himself to their abuse. So when Peter says to arm yourself with the same thinking Christ had in His suffering, this is one of the things he refers back to. We are to arm ourselves with the resolve that no matter what, no matter what, we will continue to entrust ourselves to the will of the Father. This was a premeditated determination on Christ's part to follow the will of God, and we must make the same premeditated determination that we will submit our will to the will of the Father no matter what. This is the example, as Peter said, that Christ left us. Peter also mentions Christ's suffering in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm just going to read verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
Peter tells us that yes, Christ's first priority was to glorify God and do God's will. But here we see that Christ was focused not just on the task at hand, but on the end result as well for us. He suffered that He might bring us to God. Christ suffered to reconcile sinful mankind to a holy God. And there was no other way for sinners to be made clean before a holy and righteous God. So we're looking at this first why. Why should we obey? And it's not just because Christ suffered. It's not just a cold, hard example for us to follow. But it is because Christ suffered and died to redeem you and I by His blood. And if the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe submitted His will to the Father to the point of death on the cross to secure a salvation for you and I, how much more should we be willing out of love to submit every aspect, every moment of our lives to obey the will of the Father? We should obey because Christ suffered and gave His life up for us. The sovereign Creator of the universe stepped off of His throne and condescended to live in this sin-sick world and subject Himself to torture that you might be purchased from the depths of hell. So the first reason why that Peter gives us here, why we obey, because Christ suffered and purchased us by His blood. He loved us and purchased us by His blood. We are to know and understand this and arm ourselves with the same determination to obey God. That brings us to the second reason Peter mentions that we are to obey the Word of God. Why number two? There's no time to live like Gentiles or unbelievers. There's no time to live like unbelievers. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2-5, to we see this, "...arm yourselves so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh." No longer for passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We are to live the rest of of time in this life for the will of God, to glorify God, to obey Him, not for our human passions, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. There are a couple of things to note from the Greek text here. That word translated as suffices in our English translation, if you have an ESV Bible, it's in the middle of the sentence there in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices. But in the Greek, that word is actually the first word in the sentence for emphasis. And I'm learning some Greek right now as I get ready to go to seminary, and I've learned that the orders of the words and the sentences in Greek, the order doesn't really matter. They can be all jumbled up completely, and you can still figure out what the sentence means because there are so many word endings. And so oftentimes, the word at the front of the sentence is there for emphasis. And that's the reason here. Peter wants us to know that sufficient 
is the time past for doing what Gentiles want to do. And to reinforce this, that it happened in the past and that now we are to move on to something different, Peter uses three words in the perfect tense, indicating that they are in the past and they were over. There's no more time for them. Look at verse 3 with me. According to Robert L. Thomas, he says, and I quote, the first term translated, that is past, time that is past, speaks of time that has lasted a while but has now ended. The second term is that term translated for doing or suffices for doing for a time but now no longer. And the third is translated in the ESV as living. Living in and then it lists all the sins. And it speaks of having proceeded in but now never again occurring. The perfect tenses of these words imply that the course is closed and done and is looked back upon as completed in the past. End quote. So Peter communicates that we have had sufficient time in the past to live like unbelievers. And we are now to press forward only doing the will of God. There is no more time appointed for doing what unbelievers do or as a matter for us as Christians, just doing whatever we want to do regardless of God, what God wants us to do. That time is done and over. And just in case you don't know what those things are specifically, Peter lists them out here for us in verse 3. He says, living in or having preceded in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, never again to live in such a way is what he tells us. And just as a side note, we're going to look at, look at a few of these and maybe how they relate to us today in our current context. But it is kind of a side note because it doesn't exactly have to do with why number two, but it will inform us as we look back and think upon that there's no more time to live like Gentiles. So Peter lists six things here. And we're not going to go over them in depth because some of them need no explanation. But just briefly, sensuality is unbridled, unhindered, immoral living. Sensuality is doing whatever pleases the senses. Whatever feels good. Whatever looks good, we take. And it is also without shame. This is the epitome of our country today. People do whatever feels good to them. The only moral law in our culture is the self. And the only thing you should not do is what you don't want to do, but you should do whatever feels good to you because that will make you happy in the moment. That's how our current culture thinks. God has given us our senses so we can enjoy life. We've heard some beautiful music today, some beautiful sights outside, sounds and smells these spring mornings. God has given us our senses to enjoy the life that He has given us, but we must not be driven along by them. We must not give ourselves over to every whim of our senses to please ourselves in whatever manner we like. We're not driven along by our senses. We are driven along by the Spirit of God as we learn about Him through His Word. 
Passions from verse 3 are those evil desires which lead to unbridled sensual living. Desires lead to action. Unrestrained desires lead to unrestrained action. Out of the overflow of the heart come the actions. Drunkenness is pretty self-explanatory, but since we live in Colorado, I figure I better mention that this refers to intoxication in general. Okay, We've legalized marijuana here just because it's legal doesn't mean that's okay, that it pleases God to do that. The condemned idea here is giving over your faculties to another substance, alcohol or otherwise. Orgies and drinking parties need no explanation except to say that they were gatherings and parties and festivals expressly intended to facilitate sexual immorality and intoxication. And then finally, he lists lawless idolatry. With the bookends of sensuality on the one hand and idolatry on the other, you could pretty much put anything in between those two on a list and they would fit. The four that Peter put in the center of that list, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, those were socially acceptable to the Gentiles of the day. Many of those things are socially acceptable to the Gentiles of our day. And lawless idolatry gives rise to all of these things as cultural norms. For us today, we don't necessarily need to focus on what Peter identified as cultural norms, which should be rejected by the church. But the implications from this passage is that we identify what our cultural accepts as good, but our idolatrous sin in the eyes of God. Because those things creep into the church. And I think it's so important that we rightly identify the idolatry of our nation as culturally acceptable practices because historically, as you read through the Bible, Historically, idolatry more than anything else has crept into the congregation of the people of God quietly and at many times unnoticed because it is mixed with the worship of Yahweh. This has in turn given rise to acceptable sins among the people of God and even in the church today. Now we could talk all day about the idolatrous state of our nation, the things that they give themselves over to, but let's bring it a little closer to home and talk specifically about some acceptable idolatry that has crept into the church. I think two of the acceptable idolatries that have crept into the church today are idolatry of self and idolatry of the family. We were actually just, somebody mentioned this yesterday in the theology study. I think there are several factors that have played out the last 50 years or so to bring us to the point today where we have a generation of young people who totally worship themselves. And I think there's a couple things that have played into this. Um, About a generation ago, maybe two, was the explosion of children's activities. Everything from dance to theater to sports. As young people were not allowed to work when they were young like they used to. Um, I remember my grandfather telling me he was working on a farm when and getting paid when he was eight, that didn't happen anymore. So as young people were not allowed to work, their parents wanted them doing productive things, so they were put into extracurricular activities. This kept them out of trouble, gave them something healthy and productive to do. 
And so they did. This gave more and more opportunities for children to compete and succeed in various things, and it gave parents the opportunity to see their children excel and sometimes excel at things that they wish they would have as children. So they enjoyed watching it. As children wanted to be in more and more, parents wanted to see their children excel at more and more things. And so they put them in more and more activities. For unbelievers, this just gave something family-oriented to do on the evenings and the weekends. But this also crept into the church. For Christian families, this began to draw the affections away from Christ and the church onto children and sports and other activities. Soon the main focus of the majority of church-going people was not the church, but it was giving their children every opportunity to do what they wanted to do. Many of you may remember that sports, when you were a kid, didn't practice on Wednesday nights at school because that was a night for church. But even by the time that I was in high school, that was long gone. There was no room in the middle of the week for church because there was no desire on the part of parents or children to devote that time to the Lord anymore. There were only more and more time for parents to devote to their children. So-called good Christian parents still came to church on Sundays, but they bowed to worship at the feet of their children every other day of the week. Parents' affections were divided with a much smaller portion devoted to the Lord and the church and a much larger portion devoted to their children and their family activities. So children grew up with their parents worshiping them at their feet pretty much, bowing to every whim that they had, whatever they wanted to do, every inclination the child had, the parents wanted to support them in that. Such extensive catering to the desires of children has led to a generation of men and women who worship themselves more than any generation in recent history, at least blatantly, outwardly. Their parents taught them that they were the most important. They were the center of their universe. And so they grew up to worship themselves as their parents had. So that generation, they now withhold nothing from themselves because nothing has ever been withheld from them. Not only has this created a great mess in our culture, but it has created a great mess in the church as well. This is why a lot of churches devoted solely to tradition are dying because there is no place for tradition in self-worship. There's no historical context for my self-worship except my life and what matters to me. Therefore, tradition means nothing. So all those churches like the Catholic Church and others like it who are solely devoted to tradition are dying This generation wants nothing to do with it. This is also why so-called relevant churches are flourishing because they only stroke the ego of those who worship themselves. They cater to millennials, to their tastes. They tell them that they can believe whatever they want and do whatever they want. They have this feel-good gathering that they call a church with a bunch of like-minded people who worship themselves. They're devoted to the worship of their own senses. Whatever feels good is good. And that's what they devote themselves to. 
And as they go to those churches, they never have to worry about someone telling them they're wrong because everybody is right. Everyone is his own God. So I think this extensive idolatry of the family, of the children, has given rise to extensive self-idolatry. And I think both are still acceptable sins in the mind of many church attenders today, just on a less extreme level. So let's take a moment just to start with the idolatry of family and see how it's crept into the church. We've already talked about that a little bit in a historical context, but I think even today, parents of young children are pressured to idolize their children. Parents of young children, you're going to have to guard against idolizing your children because the culture is going to pressure you into putting them in all kinds of activities. With new children, there are so many do's and don'ts of what you should do with your child, what you shouldn't do with your child, that it will pull you away from Christ and the church. One of the things, at least when we had kids several years ago, we were told that you need a strict schedule, that nothing can interfere. If your child takes naps during church, then you don't go. If an evening activity keeps them up too late, then you stay home. From the time your children are newborns, you're going to be conditioned by our culture to treat them either as gods or you're going to be told just to cast them aside and worship yourself. Let me just tell you, young parents who have kids or are getting ready to have kids, your children won't die because they miss a couple of naps and they won't be weak and stupid if you get them to bed later one night a week. They won't kill them, but if you do cater to them, they will quickly learn who rules the house. They will quickly learn who you are bowing to. And look, I, I understand. I understand that kids, they do so much better if they have a strict schedule. I know if you throw them off that they get grouchy the next day and many of you moms, you're the ones that have to deal with it. But you have to teach them that they are not the object of worship in your household. And if, they, if those children do dictate your every move in the house, then they have taken that place. That has become an idol in your home. Kayla and I visited California a few weeks ago to line up, uh, line up a job and a house. And we had the opportunity to go to a Wednesday evening service. They have a Wednesday evening service like we do. They have a WANA for the young children. They have youth groups, some adult Bible studies. Only those of you with, with kids in Awana, you know what time they start Awana? 6.45 and it goes till 9 o'clock at night. Kayla and I were talking about the adjustment that that will be for our kids. And one of the ladies that we were with, we were talking to her and she said that it was an adjustment for her kids as well. She actually had a teacher tell them that she needed to get them to bed earlier on Wednesdays because they were tired on Thursdays. And so she needed to not take her kids to church she needed to get them in bed earlier so that they could be more awake and aware to learn at school. But of course, this lady said no because worshiping Yahweh was the priority, not bowing to every whim that the culture thought was necessary for her children. Parents, the greatest thing you can do for your children is not 
give them a strict schedule or send them to the best school or give them every opportunity to succeed or even pay for their college. But the greatest thing you can do for them is to teach them their place in the world. Teach them devotion to Yahweh, not themselves. This is our first and primary duty as parents to teach our children to fear the Lord. Some of you grandparents, even if you didn't struggle with idolizing your children, you're probably going to struggle with idolizing your grandchildren. Don't let your children or grandchildren or other family keep you from being fully devoted to the Lord in service in the local church. Many of you here, you have a lot of family. I have a lot of family here. And if you have a lot of family around like I do, you have to say no to birthday parties, to family gatherings, if there's so many that it keeps you from building relationships among this local church body. I know for a fact that if Kayla and I did not have the family around that we do, we would be much closer to other people in the church. And those of you that do have a lot of family, you have to remember that there are people here who do not have that. And if you give all of your free time to your family, there is none for those here who don't. There are people in this church that need some of your family time. This body of believers here, we want this to be our close-knit family. And many times, those of us that have large families close by, our time and affections are drawn away from church because we have family other places. And that's great. That is a blessing, but we have to be careful and make sure that we are devoting time building relationships among people here who don't have family because they need us. So, the time for idolizing your children and family is past. That's what unbelievers do because they don't know any different. You're called to set those things aside You're to teach your children to be wholly devoted to Yahweh and His commands. And those of you who are grandparents, teach your grandchildren to be completely devoted to Yahweh and what He says. Those of you who are single, whether younger or older, you have to fight against idolizing yourself and your own time and your own desires. Your parents may have idolized you growing up, making it more difficult for you to break that habit, but nonetheless, you must Break that habit. You must repent and put Christ first. You also must realize that you are single because God has placed you in that situation right now. The best thing you can do is devote yourself to learning and service to Him in the local church. You have so much more free time than those who are married and have children. So don't waste it on frivolous things, but devote yourself to learning and building the local church. Not only have you been blessed with more time, but if you are looking to get married and have children, the best training you can get is being involved, learning in the local church. But let's be honest, single people aren't the only ones who can become self-focused and idolizing self. How many of us have debated whether or not we should go to a church event based on the event itself, or who was teaching, or what the subject was? Oh, I don't think I want to go to church tomorrow. Brett's going to be preaching So I'm going to wait and go next week. The joke's on them though because I'm preaching next week too. (laughs) 
or I don't think that topic is for me, I'll stay home and read my Bible instead. We always come up with self-righteous reasons not to go to church, right? We so easily forget that the church is not here to cater to us. The church is here so we can learn about the God that we serve, to be encouraging to one another, to come together to praise Him, to fellowship, mutual edification of the saints. And if you are not here, you're not taking part in that and you're not giving back towards that. The more people that show up to things, the more encouraging it is. How many of you come on Sunday nights and you're just so encouraged that sometimes there's over 70 people there to learn? Not only that, but to learn how to evangelize the lost. It's so encouraging not just to see the numbers, but to hear people's hearts for the lost. To be encouraged by one another as we gather together. Even if you don't speak up and you don't say anything, just being there is an encouragement for yourself. You get to hear the hearts of other people. And to think that we're not going to learn anything by a specific topic at church is just very proud and arrogant. How exciting would it be if there were 70 adults on Wednesday nights as we gathered to learn through the Route 66 study? Why are there 70 people on Sunday nights and only 30 on Wednesday nights? I'm sure it has nothing to do with personal preference on what is being taught. Right? Not any of us, right? Or guys, on Saturday mornings, how encouraging would it be if there were 70 guys there on Saturday mornings as we learn how to be better men, husbands and fathers, and learners of God? Men, there is no better place for you to be if you want to learn how to be a more godly man or husband or father than to be there on Saturday mornings. And it was specifically designed to be early so it didn't cut into your Saturday. So all you're sacrificing is sleep. And you can get more sleep some other time. So I would just encourage you, definitely you men, to come on Saturdays. How exciting would it be if there were 70 people showing up on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock to pray before the worship service? I must confess, today was the first time I went to that. I felt convicted after putting this study together, and I did some repenting this week. And I showed up to the prayer group this morning. So you'd have to ask one of them, Gary or Charlene, how exciting would it be if there were 70 people there on a Sunday morning to pray? It was very encouraging to hear their hearts for the church. I'm sure in the past I've always justified it by saying I needed more sleep so I could pay attention in church or something silly to that effect. But it was just a reason to idolize myself and do what I wanted to do instead. As I was writing out some notes, this is one of the things that came to my mind and it hit me pretty hard. And the, the thought that came to my mind was, it is not your time that you're sacrificing to be at church. 
You have been bought with a price. It is God's time you are squandering when you are not doing what He wants you to do. It's not your time you're sacrificing to be here. It's God's time you're squandering when you're doing whatever you want to do and not what He wants you to do. The time for doing whatever you want to do is past. Sufficient is the time past for those things. Now is the time to fully devote yourself to learning in the service of the local church. And just to clarify, I'm not saying that everyone needs to be at everything the church does. But I am saying that you need to examine why you don't go to certain things. Are your righteous reasons really valid? Or do they reveal idolatrous motives? And like I said, I had some repenting myself to do this week. So, just to recap, why number one? Why do we obey the commands of God? Reason number one, because the King of the universe suffered and purchased you by His blood. And that goes right into number two, because He did this, the time is past for living like Gentiles do. There's no more time for foolishness and idolizing self. And why number three that Peter gives is that we only have one life to live. We only have one life to live. 1 Peter 4, 6 says, For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter wanted to assure his audience that those who received the Gospel, even though they were judged and killed in this life, they were living in spirit in eternal glory with God. Peter is pointing people to look ahead to the future glory of eternal life to arm their minds with the reality of eternal glory. Peter was reminding them of what was waiting for them when this life was over. No matter the difficulties, the trials of this life, no matter what you give up in this life to obey God, eternal glory is what believers have to look forward to. This is where we return to explain that verse 1, those who suffer in the flesh cease to sin. And suffering in the flesh refers back to how Christ suffered unto death. Therefore, those who even suffer in this life unto death, there is great glory in that because we are set free from sin in the presence of the Lord. We have an eternity free from sin alongside Christ to look forward to. An eternity of bliss with our Savior. And this eternity of bliss with our God is one motivation, one reason why we obey. As we remember that we have an eternal life waiting ahead, this brings light the temporal reality of this life. As we think about an eternal life ahead, this life seems so much shorter. As we imagine eternity, it's hard for us to get our minds around, but as we imagine eternity, this life will seem so much shorter. Those of you, maybe if you're older, if you're in your 70s, you can imagine even just living 
ten times over or a hundred times over. It's hard to wrap our minds around. If you're 70 and you lived a hundred times over, that's 7,000 years. It's hard to imagine living 7,000 years. You'd have been here at creation. But in terms of eternity, you will get to 70,000, 100,000, and you will be no closer to the end than when you began. This life is so short compared to the eternal life awaiting for us. Someone once put Solomon's analogy of life being like a breath. They put it in a cold climate context for a visual aid. This is easy for us to imagine because we live in Colorado where it gets pretty cold in the winter. You go outside in the winter and you breathe out. You can see your breath go out from you and just that quick, it's gone. That's what this life is compared to. So when it comes to the why of obedience, why we obey everything God has told us to do and specifically what Peter is about to tell us to do, why do we do that? Because we have an eternal life waiting for us and we only have so much time on this earth. We only have so much time in this life. What should we be doing in this life that we cannot do in eternity? That is evangelizing and building the church. Now is the time for evangelism, discipleship, calling people to repentance and building the church. Those who are lost in the end will be lost forever. But right now we have the opportunity to evangelize and build the church. And that's what this life is for. The next life we will have all the time and eternity for pleasure with God. But this life is all we have to build the church. Solomon wasted his life finding out that all that mattered was living in obedience to the Lord. He spent his life on pleasure of every kind, building projects. He had great business success, if you look at it in today's terms. He built the greatest kingdom Israel had ever known. He spent his life on all that to come to the conclusion that it was all worthless and wasted. He warns us in Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He spent his whole life pursuing the things of this world as an example so we don't have to make the same mistake. Don't make the same mistake spending your life on yourself like Solomon did. Don't spend this life doing whatever else the world does. You only get one life. You have to use it wisely. So why do we obey? Because Christ suffered and gave up His life to purchase us. We obey because the time for doing what unbelievers do is over. The time for living for ourselves is over. And we obey because we only have one life on this earth to build the church. Next week, we're going to look at the following verses in that chapter and specifically how 
Peter tells us we are to obey. But if you're here today, you might have noticed in all of those verses in Peter and the one we read from Solomon, there was the element that every deed will be brought into judgment. These are promises that only believers have. We have eternal bliss awaiting for us. And those who are lost, only eternal damnation. Eternal suffering. And so I would just commend you today to reflect on the music that you've heard. If you do not yet know Christ, reflect on the words that we have sung today proclaiming all that Christ has done to work the salvation for His people. Even the passage we read out of Isaiah 53 told of what Christ did. He came as God's perfect Son. He was pierced for our transgressions. We're all like sheep gone astray. We have all gone our own way. And the only way back to a relationship with the God of the universe is through repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ and His perfect sacrifice as He stood in your place, in my place for our sins. Repent today if you have not. I beg of you. If you have any questions about that, please come talk to myself. Any of the ushers you see with coats on, they can talk to you or point you to the right person to talk to. But don't go out of here today if you know you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not leave today without talking to someone. And for those of you who are believers, I challenge you to do some self-reflection on the things we've talked about. Every one of us idolizes ourselves. Do some reflecting this week on how you have done that in your own life. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, who poured out Grace upon grace upon grace greater than our sin. As our sin bears an eternal, infinite weight against the holiness of God, Your Son, His sacrifice pays that in full. And as we look to Your Remembering You this morning, Jesus Christ, and what You have done for us on the cross, we ask You to bring to mind any sins that we've committed against You. Draw us to repentance, Lord. Bring us back into full communion with You this morning as we look to take of the bread and the cup. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.